1: Welcome to American Indian Living, Dr. David DeRose. We're trying to squeeze in one more show from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I say squeeze in because we're in the exhibit hall, but things are winding down pretty rapidly. But we've still got some great folks around who are willing to share with our listeners some of what they're doing. They've been getting a lot of attention here at the Congress and... Really, we want to get the word out far beyond the, the confines of those who are actually able to attend in person. Across from me is one of those individuals, Aaron Spicer. Aaron, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thanks for inviting me to be on the show, David.
1: Aaron, you've had a booth here for the duration of the the National Congress event that is, uh, I mean, if you just walk by it, it would look like it's pronounced Equip Project, but I don't know if I've got it right. Help us out. It, that's
2: basically what it. Well, he sounds exactly right. Equip Project. Run on word.
1: Okay. And it's one word, though. There's E Q U I P R O J E C T. You're correct. Tell me, what has the response been here at National Congress about what you've been talking about?
2: Well, David, at this conference and other conferences, we've had a lot of positive response because the, the trailers that we, that we make, there's not anybody else that makes a natural disaster relief trailer of this size. The um, Department of Defense, FEMA, the trailers that they have, they're all semi-size or larger. Mm -hmm. And so those units, you have to have road access to be able to get into a natural disaster relief area. And as most people know, that's not always the case.
1: Mm -hmm. So this is great. So those of you, you've got a quick overview of what we're talking about. We're talking about relatively small units, right? Correct. And by small, what would the footprint look like? Uh, 14 to 26 feet. Okay, so 14 to 26 feet, and this is something that uh, doesn't have uh, necessarily its own means of propulsion, right? You're correct. It would need to be towed. Okay, so we've got uh, a structure that can be brought into an area that has experienced a disaster, and what is it going to offer?
2: So what we offer with these units is the very base unit is what we call the portable kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so with a portable kitchen... We, we have the patents on the slide-out units that you see in the pamphlet. And on those slide-outs, we have two two-burner stoves. We also have two 75-quart freezer refrigerator units okay. that are powered by the solar panels that are located on top of the unit. The batteries are inside. Okay. We also have 10 gallons of fresh water and 10-gallon storage of gray water to go along with the hot water that's on demand on the unit that's powered by, by gas. Propane. Okay. And then we also have a two-basin slide-out sink, mm-hmm. and then a prep table that slides out on the other side. So that the, the whole idea behind the concept is it's highly mobile
1: and rapidly
2: deployable. So let's
1: talk about a, a real-life situation, if you will. Someone listening today on a tribal nation, yes. they have some type of cataclysmic event happen. Maybe a tornado comes through. Maybe they're in Oklahoma, for example, and uh, the infrastructure damages no power, Uh, maybe there's some uh, severe weather with uh, maybe even some uh, significant rains as well. So we're in a situation, no power, maybe it's uh, colder uh, weather at the time. Do you pull this into someone's home environment? Do you bring it to a tribal center? I mean, how are you going to deploy these units?
2: So on the reservation land, the ideal setup would be that the tribes already have them in place. Okay. So then whatever area of the reservation is affected by that disaster, then they're rapidly deployable to that location.
1: Mm-hmm. And is this designed to be something just for a family to use, for a block if you're in an urban area? How many people would be serviced by one of these uh, solar-powered disaster relief units? Well, as far as the feeding capacity, that's solely dependent upon the volume of
2: food that we have. Okay. I can give you some examples of where I've personally used the unit. Please, tell us some stories. As well as the history. So the the history of the trailer is that originally they were designed to be food trailers for economic recovery in California.
1: Oh, okay. Now you say economic recovery. Uh, Break that down for us.
2: What economic recovery means, and this is also a component of natural disaster recovery, is that it allows somebody to start their own business, okay. so that they're able to create revenue, and that's the economic recovery. Okay. In a natural disaster scenario, after the immediate needs are triage, you want to make sure that the people are safe. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that the people have food, they have water, mm-hmm. and then they need shelter. Mm-hmm. Then, after people start coming in, you can actually start to do the cleanup. Then you start to rebuild. But as you can imagine, from hurricanes that have hit along the Gulf Coast. The biggest problem is you have an area that's received a huge economic hit Mm -hmm. because if they're relying upon tourism, for instance, nobody's been able to come in and generate tourism dollars. Right, right. Maybe your business has been wiped out, for instance. Mm -hmm. One of the components about these trailers is since it started off as a food trailer, Mm -hmm. you can use it to cook food because uh, food trucks are really, really popular right Mm -hmm. now. Right, right, right. So the origins of the trailer were, were economic recovery, but when the hurricane hit in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. we had friends that were sending food in a Connex box down there to help with a relief effort. We found out that they were sending food, and we asked them, how do you plan to storage, how to store it with freezer refrigeration, or how do you plan to cook it? Mm-hmm. And they looked at us basically and said, we don't have any idea. This is what we have, and we're sending it. So okay. we partnered up with them to pack the food around one of our trailers. Uh huh. Very short version. It arrives down there. It starts to be used. That caught the attention of FEMA because they said, where did you get this? Okay. okay. And so when you, if you look at one of the units, it's called a kitchen hauler. There's mm-hmm. an additional 16 feet on the back that has an ATV because one okay. of the issues that they encountered in, in, uh, in Puerto Rico was the fact that some of the houses up in the mountains they had very narrow winding trails to get up to and they couldn't access it with a truck these units are light enough that with the, the large ATVs that are available on the market you can tow these units to remote locations even if you can't get a, a commercial vehicle a truck to those locations
1: now wait let me see if i understand this correctly you're saying and i'm looking at a, an illustration here of course we can't show it on the radio but I see an ATV behind one of your units. Is this actually a uh, common platform that they're on here, a, uh, a common bed that's being shared by the ATV and your unit?
2: Correct. It's, it's all one chassis. It has two axles, so on the back part of that trailer, it'll support an additional 2,000 pounds of payload, okay. whatever you want to put on it. Uh-huh. An ATV, water, extra food, portable showers portable washing machines, Uh shelter material, anything that you want to haul. Okay.
1: And so basically when the hurricane swept through Puerto Rico – you guys ship these out in containers by boat, is that what happened? It was a Connex box, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for those, like myself, not familiar with the terminology Connex, what does that refer to?
2: Uh, so if you, you look on the, the ocean going vessels. Right, right. They have these, it looks like the size of a semi trailer. Uh huh. But they're, they're all made out of steel, so you can stack them up. Right, Cargo right. ships. Okay. And that's, that's a Connex box. That's a Connex box. Okay.
1: So if they, you pack them into these Connex boxes, how many would fit in, in a Connex box?
2: Uh, that depends upon the size of the Connex box and depending on what you would want to put in there. Okay. I know that one of the discussions they're currently with having with some governmental agencies is how many would fit in that box.
1: Okay. And it's going to depend how they're configured and the size of the box. You're
2: correct. For instance, the 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 smaller unit is the one that's 14 feet long. The larger one is 26 feet long. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how many of the units are, are need to be sent and the size of the Connex box. I forget the dimensions. You have smaller Connex boxes. And you have larger and you have extremely large Connex
1: boxes. Okay, okay. So let's come back to the Puerto Rico scenario. So you're bringing these units out, and if you bring one of these longer units out, it may have had the ATV with it. Correct. Um, and then you actually can just back the ATV off when the Connex box is unloaded and then pull the whole structure with the ATV? Is that what you're saying? You're correct. You're and correct. you were actually able to pull that off in, in Puerto Rico?
2: Yeah, it's not, it's not a problem. In that situation, what you're talking about is, is an area where a ship has docked. Right. So you have additional equipment that's available, a forklift, for instance. Okay, okay. With the extendable forks, you can bring it into the Connex box, lift the cargo, and back it out. Okay. It's at that point then you could back off the ATV and hook to the trailer and go.
1: Okay, fair enough. Okay, so this is a pretty able setup as far as to just take something and run to an area that's been hard hit. You're, you're correct. The, the, my friend uh, John, who started this this
2: 501C3, He has decades of experience of building trailers. Mm -hmm. He's also a disabled American vet. He's a Marine. Okay. So if you look at the construction of this, you'll realize that somebody who's military, specifically a Marine, didn't cut any corners and is purely
1: utilitarian. Okay. So we've got uh, this resource. You've been talking to folks about uh, uh, using these, having them available in Indian country. And what are people in tribal leadership uh, saying as they hear about the concept?
2: From what I've been been told, uh, David is that they see a need for this in any country because oftentimes what they're preparing for is remote locations mm-hmm. where they may not be able to get, for instance, solar power, okay. or they may not have electricity. Mm-hmm. In a flood situation, you never know exactly what areas are going to be affected. Okay, so okay. with these, because they're they're readily deployable and easily transportable, you can move them to whatever location is needed. Mm-hmm. The, con- the idea behind this being, instead of having to muster people at a single location, for instance, in a hurricane, uh, you're just typically going to a gymnasium or something where you can have a large mass of people mm-hmm. gather, mm-hmm. we can take these units to where the people are already located, and so that prevents them from
1: having to expend energy and mobilize to find the food. Okay, so basically what we're saying is, instead of... Having to collect people at centralized locations, you can actually have people in smaller areas, maybe a a more rural community. You could actually sustain that community as long as some of the infrastructure exists, I mean, safe housing, uh, uh, shelter at least. Then you can bring the food and the the water in through these units.
2: Exactly. Ideally, what we talk about is a base camp, Mm -hmm. and a base camp is three units. One unit is your kitchen unit. That's for your cooking and the food. Second unit is for water Mm -hmm. because you're always going to need water. Oftentimes you can't bring in enough because water weighs eight pounds per gallon. So then you're looking for a a close source that you can pump and treat if necessary Mm -hmm. to have water available for hygiene, for cooking, or also in medical situations for triage and medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, the other component that you have is uh, the solar. The third solar is solar powered where it's the double axle unit. And all that is is solar panels batteries, and inverters. Oh, okay. So that provides your solar power to remote locations or for your base camp for most of the necessities that require
1: electricity. So when we talk about water, you mentioned some of these units or the standard unit has a water holding capacity with it. You're correct. But you're also talking to us now about actually the ability to take maybe even surface water and filter that. Am I hearing you right?
2: You're correct, David, because oftentimes in a disaster situation, You may not be close to a water source, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the water source that's available may be contaminated. Right, right. So then you can use a pump-and-treat system. There's many different systems that are available, depending on what's required, to purify that water so that it's safe, it's clean. You can use it for medical purposes or for cooking and hygiene.
1: So your team would more be providing the unit itself. When it comes to actually some of these filtration devices and all, that would be some other provider, other Corporation that would presumably bring that to the table, or do you actually have those units that you could provide?
2: We have those units to provide as well. These are all components that are adaptable to this to the double t- axle trailer that we have that 's what the additional sixteen feet and the two thousand pound towing capacity is available for whatever okay. cargo is
1: required so let 's take another step and say we 've got the concept. Someone listening in today, maybe they're on a tribal council. They're saying, boy, this is something great. I'd like to learn more about it. Where does someone really get more details and really see if it's a fit for what they're looking for?
2: I, I understand, David. So the avenues that are readily available are our web page. Mm-hmm. We have a Facebook page. Um, and then you could also go to equiproject.org. That's our website you you can type in the same name on Facebook and and it'll pull up but we understand with indian people we're going to need to make personal contacts develop that mm-hmm. trust and relationship and build from there
1: okay so if you're trying to follow along with us and trying to get more information that uh, website is simply equip project but it's uh, one word e q u i p r o j e c t if you can remember that amalgamated word, then they can put that in a Facebook or even a search engine. Correct. And it's just equipproject.org. Correct.
2: Or they can call me personally the number as on the pamphlet, it's 812- 585-9001 or they can email me at aaron at org.
1: If that went by too quickly, we'll give it back to you when we come back for our next segment. Aaron is not going away, am I right? I'm staying right here. I'm staying right here. You do the same. We'll be back with more on American Indian Living right after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's one 800 775 Four, six, seven, three. We'll be right back after this.
3: This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out.
4: For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at WRInstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency
5: medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim.
4: When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke, know the signs, act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke.
5: If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back
1: with Dr. David DeRose here at the venue of the National Congress of American Indians. It's October of 2019, and we are interviewing people who are making a difference throughout Indian country. Across from me, Aaron Spicer. Aaron began this show with me. He's been talking about Equip Project. And I know in Indian country, as in it doesn't matter really, Aaron, what segment of the population you're talking about, People love stories. It draws us in. It helps us understand what we're really talking about. You gave us some illustrations from Puerto Rico. What about some things closer to home where your system has actually been utilized?
2: Okay. Well, uh, Dayton, Ohio had, had tornadoes last spring. And so we were able to partner with Team Rubicon, which is uh, a veterans or nonprofit organization that provides boots on the ground to go in and help dig through rubble and help people find items, among other things. Wow. Now, every time you have first responders, you also need support. Mm -hmm. So Team Barbecue feeds Team Rubicon. And so we partnered up with those guys and to be able to provide support to Team Barbecue for what they needed their specialty is meats that's the name team barbecue okay in that situation what we did was they needed sides and they needed refrigeration Mm -hmm. so we made sides to accompany their barbecue as well as provide refrigeration and storage
1: for the meats that they would be cooking and and water so this uh, team barbecue i mean it sounds like a uh, a very colorful name this is a real group that existed before the uh, tornado that swept through Dayton. You're correct. I, I don't know exactly how long it's been, long,
2: been around, but we were also invited to be part of FEMA's Partnership Days, which is an invitation-only event uh-huh. for the major players in natural disaster recovery. Oh, okay. Team Barbecue was there. Mm-hmm. Outside with our, ourselves, we had one of our trailers, and beside us was the Catholic Church in one of their natural disaster relief trucks. Mm-hmm. And so that whole event was designed as a networking event from the major players in natural disaster recovery so that when a natural disaster happens, we already have relationships and know the resources that are available instead of having to look at a spreadsheet of entities and try to figure out who do we contact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: I know in in talking with other people who deal with uh, disaster relief, it was uh, quite interesting. I was actually sitting with a a fellow who also works some in uh, Puerto Rico, and it was really interesting because he was talking about some of the emotional, the uh, the mental health needs that people have uh, having gone through a disaster. And was speaking about sometimes that gets missed in the equation. But as we're talking together, you got to have that basic infrastructure in place. And that really has to happen first, even if you are ministering to people as far as their mental health needs. So here's where I'm going with that whole uh, train of thinking, Aaron. Really, when I talk with people who are involved in this type of work, they often have some type of passion, some type of life history that has especially connected them with being interested in this area. Is that true in your case as well?
2: Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, I have a long history uh, dating back to when I graduated from college. Um, I ended up working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as an environmental contaminants specialist. Hmm. My interest at the time was actually in in, international environmental policy. But I I ended up uh, volunteering for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and um, and then did a foreign study in the Netherlands focusing on international environmental policy. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to the States... Uh, the field office that I worked at was actually waiting for me to apply for a position that they had created for the work that I'd been doing as a volunteer.
1: Okay. And uh, this is all sounding very interesting to me because oftentimes when we speak about environmental impact, one of the things that often does not make the top ten concern list are these disaster scenarios, and they're some of the most devastating for environmental impact, aren't they? You're correct. One of the, the things that I think is especially tragic as we've looked at some of these disasters recently is where you have this interface between industry and the environment and something that cataclysmic happens, like the break, breakage of a dam or, mm-hmm. you know, these retention uh, areas that are being used for toxic uh, wastes in some cases, perhaps inappropriately, but the point is that these things happen. Did that whole scenario actually play any role in your interest in making a difference when it comes to disaster relief?
2: It did. If it, and if I could take a minute to kind of t- explain that to you. In in college, we used a lot of case studies on uh, Superfund sites, okay. specifically in, involving what was called a consent decree. The first consent decree was signed in Bloomington, Indiana, for a hazardous waste that's called PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, which was produced for a, in electrical capacitors. Uh, ABB and then Westinghouse had electrical capacitor
1: plants in the Bloomington area mm-hmm. when I was just a small child. So we're going back uh, to Indiana. Correct. And uh, that's where your roots were. Correct. So we've got um, these so-called Superfund sites. Now these, is it safe to for the, the lay public to describe these as places that were especially bad as far as uh, contaminants?
2: Yes, they were labeled Superfund sites by the federal government which meant that then they went after the responsible parties Mm -hmm. as well as had monies available for the
1: cleanups because it was deemed hazardous to human health. So you kind of grew up in this environment. You had some awareness of this as a college student. You're correct. As a child, what I heard
2: about were the protests that were going on. Oh, okay. When I got into the university and then we started doing research, we used these locations as case studies because they were located in the immediate area.
1: So you went to the University of Indiana? Is that safe to Indiana conclude? Indiana University in Bloomington. Okay. Yes. So you've got this background in the environment. You get interested in kind of fish and, and game issues. You get international experience. And uh, I know our life stories don't always interface exactly with what we're doing, but I'm definitely seeing a lot of connections. But it seems like there might be a few more dots that we need before we see the whole picture.
2: Correct. After I was involved with the contaminants research, I was curious about how do you actually clean up a hazardous waste site? Mm -hmm. And then I became involved with the contractors who were actually cleaning up those Superfund sites. Oh,
1: okay. So you actually yourself got involved in some of the cleanup, the remediation of some of these sites?
2: Yes, I was a hazardous waste worker.
1: Wow. So uh, you've got that background of dealing with uh, some of the worst of the at least industrial contaminants. And now you start... uh, looking at what happens when nature throws a curveball, if you will, at us. So help us see how you made that transition.
2: Uh, well, everybody remembers 9-11. Okay. And after the terrorist attack, there was also the anthrax letters that were sent right, to right. the capital in Washington, D.C., Thomas Daschle's office, New York, and uh, I forget what the name of the, the publisher was in Florida. Um, the extent of the contamination on Capitol Hill was so severe that they put out a call, a blank, what's called a blanket call mm-hmm. for people such as myself that have the requirements to deal with
1: hazardous waste, but in an emergency
2: response scenario.
1: Now, this I didn't appreciate. Are you saying there really was sufficient anthrax contamination in the whole Capitol building or whatever?
2: Yes, there were seven congressional buildings that were contaminated.
1: Really? Yes. And so, uh, how big a process was that to get that cleaned up? <laughs> it, uh, involved, we arrived on
2: site, uh, I think it was the beginning of November. Uh huh. Um, that's when they'd identified the seven congressional buildings. They'd already been evacuated and they were in essence quarantined. Mm-hmm. So then I was involved with some of the initial entry teams. And what we did initially was to go in and test and see where the anthrax was. Mm-hmm. And then that determined, what cleanup was necessary to address the different levels?
1: And was there fairly widely disseminated anthrax uh, in those buildings? Um, I'm
2: not able to really oh, okay. talk about okay, that. Fair <laughs> enough.
1: I was thinking, you know, some envelopes and basically they, they identified it and got rid of it, but it was a whole lot bigger process than just that. There were seven congressional buildings. Okay. So appreciate your, uh, you know, your sensitivity to confidential information. <laughs> so we're, we're glad we don't want to cross any of those, uh, those boundaries, <laughs> but that still seems a far, far distance away from actually helping out in natural disasters.
2: Well, that was my first exposure to emergency response. Okay. So to speak. Okay. Um, so how it allowed for a jump was the fact that I, uh, You're talking about the mental health issues of people that go through a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anthrax is a naturally occurring um, in the natural environment. Mm -hmm. Um, When we were done, we were required to maintain uh, medical monitoring for up to a year. Okay. Of these individuals who are presumably exposed. Of myself that was exposed. Uh Um, And through that process was where I was introduced to this concept or, or the topic of PTSD. Oh,
1: okay, okay.
2: I had enrolled in a graduate program for groundwater hydrology Uh and uh, was not able to continue in the program. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize just how widespread PTSD is, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And some people think, well, that's what happens to military veterans. But it can happen in any traumatic setting, can't it? You're correct. So basically, you have this shared experience now with many people who've gone through serious disaster exposures. And so it seems like this, well, maybe gave you a level of compassion that uh, perhaps wasn't there before just because you didn't have that shared experience, or am I putting too many uh, connections together that shouldn't be? Well, what it did was it gave
2: me experience in emergency response, Mm -hmm. and I actually realized that I thrived in that environment.
1: Okay. And so we know there's more to the story. And uh, I'm enjoying just seeing how your life story played out, and we'll bring it all back to the Equip Project before we finish up. I'm Dr. David DeRose. There's more to uh, to Aaron Spicer's story, and more that you'll want to take away from it. But before we step away for this break, let me just one more time give you the contact information because that's going to be vital if you want to get more information. EquipProject.org. That's E-Q-U-I-P. R O J E C T dot org, and we'll have a phone number and an email for you right after this. Don't go away.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre recorded broadcast, please call 1 800 775 HOPE. That's 1 800 775 4673.
4: So, you want to be a hero? Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here in the Convention Center. Actually, the closing hours, closing minutes of a convention here, at least the exhibit hall at the National Congress of American Indians in Albuquerque, New Mexico, October of 2019. Aaron Spicer across from me right now, now being joined by someone else on our second uh, uh, set of of headphones and mic, Ben McClung. Ben, it's great to have you with us as well. It's great to be here. Thank you. And, uh, Ben, I know you and Aaron have uh, an intimate connection. We will get into that in a minute, but we've been listening to Aaron share his story about how he went from a college student with an interest in environment, getting practical experience uh, remediating hazardous waste sites, uh, gets involved in the whole 9-11 scenario with dealing with anthrax remediation, and then uh, actually deals with uh, a diagnosis that's become all too common, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Originally talked a lot about Among military veterans, and I know we've got some common ground when we speak about that, Ben, because you uh, served your country for many years, right? That's true. Thank you for your service, by the way. You're most welcome. My honor. So coming back to Aaron, we're still trying to make this connection from dealing with PTSD, dealing with uh, the uh, community now that works in remediating uh, disasters Correct. to how you get involved with equip project help uh, bring us up to speed with that final chapter
2: so the the, the short version of, of that is the fact that uh, it uh, I, I spent a good 15 years post uh, anthrax cleanup uh, really suffering from ptsd and depression wow, wow. and um, through that was where i i met ben okay and ben uh I'll let him talk about the uh, the treatments that he gives and help people working with PTSD. But one of the things that's that's common for people that struggle from PTSD is uh, wanting to withdraw mm-hmm. because we're afraid that if you knew how bad we really felt, mm. then you wouldn't want to be around us anyway. So Ben has really been instrumental in me working through that and then being able to come out, so to speak, from that that isolation. And then starting to function in society again. One of the aspects of the Equip Project is a 501c3 nonprofit that's run uh, by a disabled American veteran. Okay. You know, okay. He was a Marine. And so also with um, Team Barbecue uh-huh. and Team Rubicon, Team Rubicon is all vets. Okay. And all of these programs are to help veterans who are struggling with PTSD to give them an avenue to get out and to be productive and feel like they're a part in helping society.
1: I'll tell you, this is making the whole story so much more exciting because when someone is working with a Quip project, they're not only looking at something that can help their community, but they're connecting with a community of people who are trying to help heal themselves, if you will, as well. You're correct. So, Ben, we are so interested in your story because my understanding is you suffered from PTSD yourself. Yes, I do. And that was a result of uh, your combat experience? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to share any details just to help us understand uh, your world? Um, I was a
3: combat medic mm-hmm. uh, in the United States Army. I did two tours in Vietnam. Wow. Uh, October 1968 to April 1970. Um. Coming back was the biggest and hardest part Mm. because I had become very acquainted with and comfortable in jungle lifestyle, Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: and um, I did not feel like I would fit back in
1: this world as we speak. Okay. And was that a scenario that definitely played out for you? Yes. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. So you end up at some point, uh, being diagnosed with PTSD and finding healing and then wanting to share that with other people. I, I know that's uh, probably condensing a whole, whole bunch of experience into a very short synopsis. Uh, when I came back in 1970, there
3: wasn't a diagnosis of PTSD available. Okay. okay. Uh, nobody was really understanding what that meant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for 10 years I suffered in silence and just thought I was uncommonly insane. Mm. So, um, it wasn't until I was, uh um, suicidal that I went to the VA and, and they started to help there, but the treatment there was with, uh, heavy duty medication. Okay. Fair enough. And, um. Uh, I couldn't handle that, so I went elsewhere mm-hmm. and uh, tried to deal with the world in different ways. And um, I I got my nursing license and I started working in ICUs uh-huh. at uh, BCMC UNMH now, and um, that gave me a sense of purpose again. Okay, and uh, uh, allowed me to. Get back into my role of saving lives and being purposeful and, but still there was a, a, a lot of problems with every time a helicopter would fly mm-hmm. over, I would go into deep depression, mm-hmm. fear, mm-hmm. all of that. It showed up in many, many different ways. And I just thought I would be crazy for the rest of my life. And it actually wasn't until, uh, 2000 something uh, after 9/11 that I actually got the PTSD diagnosis because I'd avoided uh, the VA because if you have a uh, history of mental illness that doesn't look too good on your resume going into an ICU unit
1: okay uh, fair enough yeah if you want to if you want a job taking care of uh, the sick is sick you can't get your s- concerns
3: right sick and sick All right, yeah. so yeah, it's not that easy to talk about nowadays. But no, but 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 thank you so intense. much for
1: for opening our eyes a little bit. So what were some of the things that you found helpful that then you ultimately shared with people like Aaron? Uh, I started work with the uh, John Upledger
3: Institute out of uh, Florida, and they do craniosteopathy.
1: Now, see, I'm not familiar with that at all. <laughs> so these are doctors of osteopathy, right. DOs, okay, right. and they're doing manipulative techniques? Manipulative. Techniques. okay yes. but i 'm not familiar with that particular method it it's uh, it 's quite common with
3: osteopaths mm-hmm. uh, most osteopaths don 't do the manual work anymore okay but uh, uh, dr up ledgers it 's not that he dumbed it down, but he ha- he made it more available for common people to use Fair enough, and he started teaching it to Anyone who had a license to touch, uh, okay. massage therapists, uh-huh. chiropractors, um, and that kind of stuff. So uh, I got in it because I was working with head and spinal cord injury patients. Mm-hmm. And I saw it work, and I wanted to do it. And I got in it and haven't looked back since.
1: Now, there's some things that are easy to do on radio and some things that are more challenging. So, of course, you can't demonstrate something and we watch it but is it a manipulative technique? Is it more of a massage technique? What would it look like if someone was was just watching you uh, as a practitioner of this technique? I like to tease uh, people who say, I, may I watch you work? And uh-huh. I go, yeah, it's kind
3: of like watching grass grow.
1: Okay, okay. So
3: you can't really see much. You feel far more than you can see. Mm-hmm. So uh, the best way to do would be to go to uh upledger.com okay okay com, mm-hmm. and you can see the techniques there and also the brawl institute b a r r a l institute.com and that's the visceral and neural and vascular portion of osteopathy
1: okay so Aaron i'm trying to see where you fit into this story so we're hearing about these different techniques. Is that your connection with Ben? In a way, uh, he and I
2: met at a gathering, and I hope it's okay to tell this part, Ben. Okay. Uh, uh, in this gathering, at the end of the four days, he, he said to me, he said, Would you be my friend? Hmm. And after we spent been that close together for four days, it, it was a natural response for me to say, Well, of course, sure, I'll be your friend. Mm-hmm. Well, you fast forward, what, five, six years after that? when I came down to New Mexico to visit Ben, and then he explained to me that for him, the courage that he took, it took for him to ask me to be his friend because of how isolated he still was from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, when I came to visit him in his house, he started talking to me about trauma and PTSD. Uh, I was uh, going to be married shortly, and so I thought he was actually talking more about relationships Uh or talking with my now (laughs) ex-wife. And so after after our divorce, uh, and I'd been living out of the country for a long time, and I came back to the States, Mm -hmm. I had this overwhelming sense of uh, homelessness, Mm -hmm. of not belonging. And Mm -hmm. I came back to spend time with people that I knew loved me and cared about me Mm -hmm. and that I felt safe being around. And so I came out to Benny's house. And so Benny started talking to me again about trauma and PTSD and asked me, will you allow me to do one of my my treatments on you? Okay. And so in, in those regards is when he really helped me being able to start processing what had been going on that I didn't even realize was going on. Mm-hmm. I was able to identify the depression. Um, I'd been uh, diagnosed with clinical depression a number of years before that mm-hmm. and thought that was merely what I was encountering. It was the uh, counsel that I was seeing to treat the depression and and do the, the uh, medication management who first started talking to me about PTSD. Okay. So the short version is Ben is the one who's helped share his own experience of how do you live and how do you regain becoming a productive member of society after having suffered from PTSD and because PTSD is not just for people who've been in combat zones. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I love the whole story because really what we're doing right now, we're talking about how you guys collectively in different ways are giving back. And in fact, instead of talking about disability, we're talking about the ability to serve better because you've gone through an experience uh, that was very traumatic, right? Exactly. And so who better to make a difference in an area that's been ravaged by a disaster than someone who can say – you know, I've been there. I haven't gone through a tornado. I haven't dealt with a hurricane uh, firsthand. I mean, it wasn't my home that was wiped out there, but I know what you're going through. Do you find those opportunities just naturally come up as you uh, work in this field? I do. And, and kind of a segue to help
2: make the jump from anthrax to the trailers is uh-huh. that one of the opportunities that presented itself this past spring at a gathering was where I, I met the the people that are involved with Equip Project. Okay. I didn't even know what that was, uh, but I was traveling and helping feed people. I have a 2006 Subaru Impreza with a two-burner Coleman stove.
1: Okay, fair enough.
2: And I, I met the gentleman, John, who runs the project, and the short version was after he asked me, well, what do you do, and I started explaining to them, he uh, talked to one of his other partners who was also at the gathering, and they asked me would I be willing to accept one of their trailers and travel with it and feed the people.
1: Wow. So they just wanted to give a, make a gift to you? You're correct. Wow. And that's how you got connected with this project? They
2: came to be, because they're friends of Benny's, and that's how I met
1: them. So it's safe to say that you must have had a good experience with the unit. It's very safe to say that. I feel like I won a lottery. Okay. We've got to tell the final chapter in this story in our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. We've got more from both uh, Ben and Aaron and bringing it all back to you and what you might be concerned about as far as potential for a disaster in your community, things that can make a difference for you. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be right back after this.
0: Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with
1: Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Across from me, thankfully, still both Aaron Spicer and Ben McClung, they've been sharing from their own experience and talking about how this all fits in with making a difference in your community when it comes to the potential of a natural disaster, which exists for all of us. Is that safe to say, guys? Correct. That's true. So... We've been talking about the Equip Project, and I realized after we finished our last segment that I keep promising you more contact information. Aaron, there's no one better than you to give us that information again. If someone's wanting to connect with you, how do they do it? So you can reach out to us on the World Wide Web. Our website is
2: equiproject.org, or you can email me at aaron.org. At symbol e q u i p r o j e c t dot o r g. Okay. We're also on Facebook.
1: So the common denominator is remembering equip project, not as two words. One. That last p in equip and the first p in project have become married together in a single letter. So it's equip project. I like to say equip project. Equip project. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Dot org. And then you'll spell it right. Equip Dot org. And uh, if you remember, Aaron has been my guest from the top of the hour, A-A-R-O-N. His email is simply Aaron at equip project.org. Aaron, some folks who are tuning in today, they're listening on conventional radio and they say, we don't have reliable internet uh, access. That's why we're so worried about a natural disaster because our infrastructure is really limited to begin with. There is a phone number, too, they can use, right? There is a
2: phone number. It's my personal business number. It's area code 812-585-9001. It's
1: 812-585-9001. So let's come back to our dialogue. And for those who've maybe caught us midway, uh, what we've been talking about from the beginning are these uh, solar-powered disaster relief units. Correct. For those who may not have caught our... Fairly detailed discussion of these units at the first segment. Can you give us a quick summary of what these units are that we've been discussing?
2: Correct. These units, uh, the base units, are a single axle or a double axle trailer. We have a a portable kitchen, which is the single axle, which has the capabilities of freezer refrigerator units that are powered by solar and battery storage. Mm -hmm. They have two two two-burner stoves. These are all on slide outs that we have the patent to. We also ha- have slide outs for a two basin sink. We have hot water on demand and there's a prep table that slides out as well. There's storage on top. And then for the unit that I've been living out of since June, we have a, a fold out tent that's made by uh, Cascadia tents on mm. the top. But we're, we don't have a, a direct relationship with them. It's, you can put whatever tent or awning that you want
1: to on it. Now, now the plot has really thickened for me because I didn't pick up on this, Aaron, if you mentioned it. You're actually personally living out of one of these units. You're correct. As I mentioned before,
2: I travel each summer feeding people at gatherings. Mm -hmm. And so when I said that I feel like I won the lottery, I went from driving a Subaru Impreza Uh 2006 to now I have one of of the trailers as well as a brand new diesel king
1: cab eight-foot bed truck to drive around in style. Okay. Very good. And so you actually are able to take your unit that you're living out of and actually... Help in disaster situations? Is that something you've actually done with that particular unit?
2: For, well, for myself, it's not been a disaster. What I've been doing, some of the gatherings are powwows. Mm-hmm. The Little Shell powwow up in Newtown, North Dakota, a friend of mine, Gary Rush, he was doing a giveaway where he fed the powwow for one, one meal in the evening. It's the first time he's been able to dance powwow in over 30 years. Wow. So we fed approximately a 1,000 people that evening.
1: Uh-huh. And all out of that unit? All out of that unit. Okay. Correct. Well, this is a fascinating story, and I want to bring you back into the dialogue, Ben, because you reached out—you reached out far out of your comfort zone—to make uh, friends with Aaron. How does it make you feel to see where Aaron has come since your paths first crossed? It's an answer to my prayers. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, my impression is you have probably taken an interest in a lot of folks. Yes, who have gone through this same journey. I, I don't want this to be depressing, but. Um, have you had a lot of success stories or are there more disappointments sometimes than there are successes? I would say there's far more successes
3: than, than failures.
1: Really? Well, that's impressive. That's impressive.
3: Uh, the only failures that I have is suicide and that's one of my biggest, uh, uh, challenges right now is especially with young people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who don't even realize that Depression may be post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. And that's uh, something that I'm really striving to open everybody's eyes that there is hope mm-hmm. and there is, there is life.
1: But it's, when you end that life, there is no hope. That's right. That's right. And I, I think it's, that's so well put. And I, I have a, a friend who talks about some of the challenges in his uh, early life where he many times Thought about taking his own life and uh, was very close at times. And one of the things that kept him from doing that, um, I mean, just some, you'd say some common sense things. You know, life was really bad from his perspective, but he said, well, there may be something really good out there that I haven't experienced yet. But just, it was just this, this attitude really of hope, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And so you guys are not living so much in hope in future expectancy, but you're actually seeing positive things happening right now. And I want to bring the dialogue back to you, Aaron. So you've been here at the National Congress speaking to people about these units. What does that do for you when you come and interface with people? I mean, this is a lot of people would say for someone who has tendencies to maybe step into the background, this might be a a challenging environment. Is that uh, sizing things up correctly? Some of my support network have used the phrase leveling up. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that mean for those of us who haven't used that terminology?
2: Uh, that means that I'm having to really push my comfort zones. Okay. okay. And to start to be uh, more outgoing and trust mm-hmm. that I do have skills that are valuable to the community at large. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the aspects about Equip Project is because it's a disabled veteran-owned brand nonprofit, one of our goals is to provide an opportunity for veterans as well as other people to be a, a part of helping help help people, not only in natural disaster, but with uh, the other volunteer opportunities that we have with the Equip Project. Mm -hmm. And it serves a a plethora of reasons. The main one being, which also goes back to the native people, is that when you start talking about transgenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. this trauma develops and, and then shows itself in alcoholism and drug use and abuse and a plethora of things. So when you have an opportunity to go and help feed the people, to help bathe the people, to help provide power to the people, to provide... Uh, a freezer refrigerator units to care for the medication for the elderly. That's an opportunity for us to be of service to the people and care for them.
1: So if I'm hearing you right, Equip Project is not just about units that can help people throughout Indian Country or throughout any community in a disaster. It's also about providing opportunities for people to serve. Am I hearing that correctly? You're correct. We're also organizing a volunteer force That uh, when
2: a natural disaster strikes and we would be activated, then we would go down that list of people who have signed up as volunteers and have been trained to then go and actually man the trailers. Now, specifically on the reservations, that's not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're specifically talking about providing a trailer that the, the people can own. It's on the reservation land. You can use it to handle natural disaster response, but also with the portable kitchens. I have a good friend of mine who's using one to vend at powwows because one of his dreams has been able to run a food truck.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this is really a self-contained food truck, if you will. You're you're correct. And you can bring it anywhere, even off the grid. Anywhere. You can tow it up in the mountains.
2: With the solar, you don't have to have on a power hookup. Mm -hmm. With the the gas, of course, that would be a limiting factor because you would need to replenish the gas. Mm -hmm. But with the freezer refrigerator units... You're able to store your food. You're able to store medication. Oh. Mm-hmm. You're able to store ice, and so it's a self-contained unit because it's light and it's rapidly deployable. You can get to places quicker than most of the other resources that are available through FEMA or the DoD.
1: This is such great stuff. So what I'm, I'm hearing, I, I started this interview just uh, you know to be transparent, thinking that we'd be talking about these disaster units, but we've covered so much more. And really, the call to you know, if you will, for, for folks that are listening, is um, not to, to sell them something, but to help them realize there's a resource here yes. for a tribe, for a, a community, for a business, uh, you know, whatever, the, the uses are, are infinite, but also there's opportunities for service. Do you encourage people to go to your website if they're looking for these volunteer operations as well?
2: Yes, there's a sign-up uh, page that's on the website for people that are interested. You're not obligated um, initially, they're just going to talk to you and find out, okay, are you really interested? Um, and then uh, when there's training, they'll be available. You can sign up for the training. But if there is a natural disaster, you're still not obligated. They're going to go down the list, and they're going to see who's available. Mm-hmm, You'd mm-hmm. also only be asked to go and serve in the disaster area. Uh, FEMA divides the U.S. into six regions. Okay. You would only be asked to go in a region that's within your area. Okay, very good.
1: Well, our time has just about slipped away. Uh, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Ben, you too. And Ben... You focused on this area of hope as uh, we close out the show. Any words of hope that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Where there's life, there's hope. Appreciate that so much. One more time, if you want to get hold of Aaron or others with the Equip Project, it's E-Q-U-I-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. That's their website, EquipProject.org. It'll also get uh, get to them on Facebook. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has given you some new vistas on how to improve your health, how to help your community down the road, if not today. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm wishing you the very best of health.
5: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio
0: Network.